Hi, I'm Matthew State. Um, I'm the Obendorf Family Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. And I want to talk to you today about the hunt for genes in autism and then about the process of moving from gene discovery to understanding something about uh, the pathophysiology of autism spectrum disorders. So you've heard already from Dr. King about the defining characteristics of autism. I won't belabor them here. Uh, I just want to point out that um, uh, we've known for quite a long time that um, uh, genetics plays a very important role in autism. But um, despite knowing that, um, uh, when I began uh, to work in this field in, in the late 1990s, uh, one of the things that, that drove my interest was the lack of, of information about the molecular cellular circuit level um, uh, um, uh, pathology of autism. And, and that is a fundamental obstacle um, to identifying novel forms of treatment. And consequently, I became very interested early on in, in using genetics as a way to address that problem. Now, one of the things that um, I was interested in was focusing on a particular kind of genetic variation, rare mutation, uh, as part of the strategy. And the reason that um, I was interested in doing so is that I knew that there was a pretty reliable relationship between rare mutations and large biological effects. Um, and because of the strategy, which was to use gene discovery to begin to uh, identify a thread to pull on to understand biology, uh, our presumption was that the larger the effects, the better. So we focused on rare mutation because we presumed that they would have large effects. Um, one of the reasons that we focused on genetics as opposed to some other approach um, is that it also gives you some important um, potential insights that may be difficult to find with other methodologies. One of the most important is that, remember, that genetic mutations, if they're in the germline, and these mutations were, were looking for germline mutations, um, that uh, if they're in the germline, they're there before the brain is, is built. And that gives you some traction on the, the uh, temporal unfolding of risk, which is, uh, can be a, a difficult problem in autism, and, and uh, one that genetics, if you can be successful, one that genetics can answer. And obviously, it, if you can find genes, it's taking you down to the molecular level and then hopefully would allow you to go from molecules to cells to circuits. So that was the strategy that we were interested in using, focusing on rare mutation as an entree into biology. But there's one additional um, uh, twist on this that I want to describe for you, which is that we were not only focused on rare, but we were also focused on de novo mutation. And here, just to remind you that a small amount of mutation uh, in every generation is introduced newly, so the vast majority of variation is transmitted from generation to generation, but there is a small amount new in each generation. And it has particular characteristic, if it's related to disease, again, that help us potentially identify things with very large effects. And the idea here is that uh, de novo mutation, there's very little time for natural selection to act on de novo mutation. So if the child is born with a de novo mutation, they can have very severe neurodevelopmental problems. Um, but as long as they're able to survive through um, the pregnancy, uh, you would be able to see a relationship between a de novo mutation uh, and this uh, severe phenotype. And you would imagine that after generations of that, it would be unlikely that that would be transmitted. So de novo mutations give you particular opportunity to find very large effect variations. And we were quite interested in that. And that fortunately uh, coincided with the clinical observation that families many families with autism look as though there might be a de novo mutation because no one else in the immediate family seems to be affected and then there's an affected child. Now, we call that a simplex family if, we, if overtly there's only a single affected uh, kid. 
Um, finally, a very important piece of information arose in about 2006, 2007, when um, uh, several labs were able to show, looking at submicroscopic changes in chromosomal structure, that it looked like de novo mutation um, in, in, uh, um, uh, in, in chromosomal structure was more frequent in kids with autism than without. And, and that gave us a sense that if we could look potentially at the genome in higher resolution, if we could sequence uh, the DNA uh, uh, in uh, every gene, in every individual, that we might be able to identify um, even higher resolution uh, genetic abnormalities that would take us uh, to the specific genes that were contributing to ASD. But then as a consequence of um, a particular patient cohort put together by the Simons Foundation in New York called the Simon Simplex Collection, uh, we, we were able to study families that not only had a single affected individual, but in most cases also had unaffected siblings. And the key here is that in addition to seeing what was different between the parents and the children, we were also able then to compare the affected child to the unaffected child and ask the simple question, within the same family, if there's a de novo mutation, is it more likely to land um, in a child with autism than you would expect by chance? Um, with the idea that that would give us a signal that de novo mutation uh, was contributing to autism. So as I said, the technology that we were able to use by about 2011 was called whole exome sequencing. And this allowed us to read the DNA code of each one of the about 21,000 genes in the genome for every family member. And it's this level of resolution and throughput that really made an enormous difference in our being able to be successful in gene discovery. So using that methodology, um, we were then able in 2012 to publish a paper um, that looked at about 240 families. Now, they're called 238 trios, um, only to... to it should say actually quartets, not trios. And quartets meaning that uh, there were both two parents as well as two children, one affected and one unaffected. And we call the affected the proband, and we call the unaffected uh, the unaffected sibling. And for all the diagrams, well, on this page anyway, the red represents the affected child and the blue uh, represents the data from the unaffected siblings. And what we're showing here is that when we start to look through the genome at de novo mutations, what we find um, is that if you look at mutations that are not expected to have any biological function at all, we don't see any difference uh, between um, uh, probands and siblings. In fact, the siblings have a slightly higher rate, but it's not statistically significant. But then importantly, if we began to look at variations in the genetic code that would be predicted to alter the function of the underlying protein or the, the, the encoded protein, we began to see consistently that there's a higher rate um, in, uh, in affected individuals versus unaffected individuals, and this is uh, statistically significant. Now, there's several things that I need to add to clarify um, this result. The first is, I've told you it's de novo mutation. More specifically, what we were looking at is germline de novo mutation. What that means is that the mutation was introduced in sperm or an egg just prior to conception, uh, is there for the first cell divisions, and consequently is present in every cell in the organism. That's what we were looking for through our sequencing. Now, cancer, as I'm sure um, you're aware, may result from also from de novo mutations, but often what we're looking for there are what are called de novo somatic mutations, 
there, is, there are mutations that happen in DNA after uh, the uh, early cell divisions in an organism, leading some cells to have um, the, uh, the mutation of interest and others don't. In this case, again, this is germline. So uh, the mutation that we're interested in would not be present in any of the cells in the parents and would be present in all the cells in the kids. So germline de novo mutation. The second thing that I want to clarify here um, is that um, what we are looking at, the rate of de novo mutation, you can see it's the rate of de novo mutation uh, is somewhere in the neighborhood of one to one and a half examples per exome. So of all the sequence, we would find essentially one event um, uh, in, in an individual if it was a mutation that was expected to affect uh, function at all. If it was the most damaging type of mutation, which uh, is a nonsense mutation, so these are stop codons or frame shift mutations or uh, mutations that affect a canonical splice site, we see an even lower rate um, of de novo mutation, so one in ten uh, individuals. So you might ask the question, is this, uh, what are we looking at? Is this simply that there are more de novo, mu there's a, a chromosomal fragility or um, a sequence fragility that leads to um, many more um, mutations kind of randomly distributed throughout the autism genome. But in fact, what you're looking at um, in the next um, panel here is that um, when you ask the question, are children with autism versus their siblings more likely to have multiple mutations, this is the expected distribution um, uh, uh, in the unaffected versus the, uh, sorry, it's the observed distribution in the unaffected versus the observed distribution in affected uh, of multiple de novo mutations. And when you compare those, there's no difference. So you're not looking at a situation where there are kids with autism have um, one, two, three, four, five de novo mutations that are leading to a greater amount overall. What we're really looking at is kids with autism potentially having just one mutation that is contributing to their being affected, and that's why we see the increased rate in affected versus unaffected individuals. Now, um, science marches forward, and, and we were extremely lucky uh, to be able to then um, uh, study um, the Simon Simplex collection as it grew. So this was um, a, a cohort of individuals uh, that was uh, the, the product of a collaboration nationwide uh, with uh, more than a dozen clinical sites that very carefully um, phenotyped individuals with autism, found these um, uh, uh, unique or, or distinctive types of families that only had one affected child. Uh, and as you saw, by 2012, we only had about 240 of those families to be able to study. By 2014, we had uh, more than 2,500 families to be able to study. Um, and again, um, the, I, I use trios and um, that, that should say um, uh, quartets. Um, and, and what you're looking at um, in each one of these, now we have a little bit different color scheme, but again, the red is uh, affected, the green is the unaffected sibling. And the take-home here is that if you look at mutations that have a significant impact, um, uh, at least putatively, on protein function, we're interpreting um, stop codons, et cetera, that we find that there's a statistically significant increase. Now, LGD down here is a term that was coined at about this time by a number of authors, uh, meaning likely gene-disrupting mutations, and that's taking missense mutations that are thought based on a variety of metrics um, to be functional and then uh, pooling them with mutations that are nonsense um, uh, mutations. So these LGDs, likely gene-disruptive um, uh, uh, or likely gene-damaging mutations are more common in kids with autism than without. 
Um, so that's an interesting finding. So what we can say is that actually in relatively small samples, only 200 or so kids, we can see the effect. We can then replicate the effect in a much larger sample. The effect size is about the same uh, and quite significant for contemporary genetic study. Um, if that's as far as we could go, though, it would be disappointing because we don't just want to be able to say there are more of this type of mutation in kids with autism than those without. What we want to do is to be able to leverage that information to identify specific genes. That's why we're sequencing the coding portion of the genome. And I'm going to jump forward to 2015 and, and get to sort of the punchline, which is highly, highly successful way of identifying reliably and reproducibly genes for autism. Now, I've told you the story, and it may sound like this was my laboratory out in the wilderness doing this, but in fact, that wasn't the case at all. There were multiple laboratories um, that were pursuing a similar strategy. The first paper that I showed you from Nature in 2012 actually published with two um, uh, two papers from other labs uh, in the same issue of Nature. Um, the second one that I just showed you from 2014 was um, a consolidation of the laboratories that were involved in those initial studies, uh, and, then, um, and then, in fact, two large consortia that sprang up. So there was an enormous amount of work going on, not just in our laboratory, but across the country, really around the world, using similar strategies. Um, and, and the benefit of that is what we saw was tremendous convergence. People got to the finish line at essentially the same time, and we were able to compare results and see that um, unlike the early days of psychiatric genetics where one lab would find a gene and then two weeks later there would be a contradictory result in the genome, we began to see tremendous convergence where regardless of whether you were in Boston or in San Francisco or in Washington State, that we were getting the same answer. Um, by 2015, um, uh, Stefan Sanders, uh, who was at the time in my lab now, he's uh, an assistant professor at UCSF, um, was lead author on a paper where we took all of the available data from these studies, put it all together, and then provided uh, sort of consolidated information on what we knew by 2015 uh, about the genes that were contributing to autism spectrum disorder. Um, and that's the table listed here. So there are a couple important things. One is just to say as a gestalt, you know, I told you I worked on this since 1997, and the first 10 to 15 years, really, you know, my, my sole goal in life was to be able to um, give a lecture and identify one gene with autism that I had confidence about. So the idea now that we've gone from sort of wandering in the desert as late as 2010 with regard to specific genes contributing to autism, a handful of findings, but, but very, very hard one. Um, uh, successes now to where not only do labs have tremendous amount of agreement, but I'm showing you a table uh, that is 71 uh, I, reliable, reproducible um, uh, um, uh, risk loci or genes. And, the, and what I'm showing you here, the table is broken down to show the confidence that we have, the statistical um, uh, bins, if you will, that we've laid out so that if you want to be very certain that you're looking at an autism gene, you can rely on a false discovery rate that's quite low, less than 0.01. But if you're simply doing bioinformatics kind of experiments, not um, expending a lot of money to make a model system like a mouse or whatever, then we can also begin to show you other genes that don't quite cross that threshold but have significant evidence. And for those of you who are very interested or have your favorite gene in this paper uh, published in Neuron, we included at the time, and it's still a pretty good resource, um, a table of every gene in the genome 
providing the statistical, the cumulative statistical evidence of its association with ASD, with autism spectrum disorders. So you can look and see where your favorite gene is, at least uh, at that period of time. And um, uh, these are now just being updated. If you have a real interest, you're welcome to contact the lab if there's a particular gene you'd like to know where it stands now. Now, um, so as I said, this is, you know, for someone who's been in this game for a long time, remarkable to be able to tell you that we have, you know, all of these reliable autism genes. And in fact, one thing I also want to sort of point out is that um, the, the, our hope that they would have large effect size, that did bear out. So that group that I showed you that had the highest level of confidence of FDRs of 0.01, cumulatively, they have 20-fold increases in risk in the affected individual versus unaffected individual. If you read genetic studies, most genetic studies that you will read now are of common transmitted variation, where if you have a 20% increase in risk, that's seen as kind of a large, you know, that, that's about as big as it gets for complex disease. So for a common disorder like autism to be able to find reliable risk genes that have 20, 30, 40-fold increases in risk, it's exactly what we're looking for. Now, the downside is they're quite rare. That limits some of the studies that we can do. But the initial strategy that I laid out for you where we we're going to try to leverage very large effect sizes, it, it looked like um, by 2015 that we clearly had an avenue to do so. So. Um, when you look through that gene list, it's hard not to just say, wow, what do those genes do? And interestingly, um, it, you could even without sort of a, a lot of fancy kind of statistical analysis, begin to see that um, it didn't look like these were a random assortment of genes, right? So um, we can anticipate that there are going to be hundreds potentially maybe a thousand genes that are contributing to autism, which is a remarkable statement. Um, and you could imagine that they might be so distributed in terms of function that you would need a hundred or two hundred different uh, treatments, and, and that would be unfortunate. But right away, we could see that that, would, that was unlikely to be the case, because um, you could already tell that these genes began to kind of fall into known biological functions or pathways that su were suggesting that these are consolidating around um, a, a much smaller number, we don't know exactly the number, but a much smaller number of sort of biological processes, and, and there were not a thousand different um, truly distinct paths. And here what I'm showing you are kind of three that popped out from uh, these high-confidence genes. The, the one that is kind of most prominent, that you just kind of fall off a log um, when you're looking at the gene list, particularly for those high-confidence, about half of them will fall into uh, uh, genes that encode proteins that are involved in synaptic signaling. Um, and, and the other half fall into genes that are involved in regulating gene expression, so are involved in chromatin modification. And here is a diagram showing sort of the cumulative um, uh, list of genes uh, by about 2014, um, and, and now we've added to this. Now, at one level, again, this is remarkable to be able to say, you got, I, I've got this many genes for autism, and I have a good idea that they're consolidating around these interesting pathways. Sort of a, a, a glass-half-empty view of this might be that you've spent all of this time and energy, and what you're telling me is that uh, genes for a neurodevelopmental disorder are involving uh, neural and development. We've got synapse genes, and we've got chromatin modification genes. Um, I think that, you know, at some level that, um, that reflects a challenge that we still have in the field, which is I can give you a broad category, um, but unless I can tell you something more specific than that, 
Um, I, I don't think that's going to take you very far. But I think it's also important to point out that even though they fall into those broad categories, um, and uh, I can take you back just one slide and say that you know the, these are it, it's it's not just a gamish. You're looking at specific pathways, and that may give us some traction on some molecular specificity to autism risk. Um, and the same is true here. It's not all of chromatin modification. There are certain genes that are carrying risk, and so far we've seen that there are others that are not. So there is, I think, some pathway here to begin to leverage directly these, the, the, the known functions of these genes to begin to take the step after gene discovery to understand biology. Um, and I have to say that I was so preoccupied for so long simply with being able to find genes uh, that by the time we got to that finish line, um, I, we hadn't really thought that deeply about what was going to happen after that. And, and I showed this slide uh, for about 15 years um, with the kind of now, in retrospect, quite simplistic idea that what would happen is we would find a rare mutation carrying large effects, and we've been able to do that, that we would study that in vitro and in vivo in model systems and in vitro, that we would get a handle on what, um, what pathways were involved, what molecular pathways were involved. And then that should be able to lead us to hypotheses about novel treatments. And, and, and this seems like a good idea, but when you actually have the genes in hand, uh, you begin to realize pretty quickly that this is overly simplistic and there's some significant challenges. This was crystallized for me, um, actually, um, Right after we discovered, we, we identified that we would be able to be successful this way. We found the first gene um, that uh, we, we knew was going to be reliable and reproducible and knew we had a path forward. It was a gene, a sodium channel, SCN2A, um, and, and literally ran down the hall. This is when I was uh, an investigator at Yale because there was a laboratory down the hall, um, uh, Steve Waxman's lab, um, that uh, knew everything about sodium channels. And we figured we have the gene, and then this is a laboratory that's going to like get us all the way around the circle to pathway very quickly. And, and so, you know, very excitedly, we went into the office. I was with a postdoc, and, and I was, you know, sort of <laughs> taken back a little because he didn't seem all that excited. And so when I pushed him on, you know, why he wasn't terribly excited about the fact that we were giving him this, you know, kind of first autism gene in a sodium channel, he said, well, you know, that's important information, but before, you know, we really can have a successful collaboration, I need to know some things. I need to know when in development, this is having its effect, and I need to know where in the brain it's having it, its effect. And the reason I need to know that is because sodium channels do a lot of different things, and they do different things at different times in different places in the brain. And so if we just kind of randomly look at this, we'll get some sort of phenotype. I'll be able to show you something, an electrophysiological signature, or it'll change migration. But I'm not, I don't know whether that has anything to do with autism. And I, and I had two kind of reactions simultaneously. One was like, how in the world am I going to tell you? We know so little about autism. I can't tell you when and where. Um, but at the same time, I realized that he was telling me something really important about the challenges of moving to genes to biology that I really hadn't thought about. So the diagram that I showed you actually sort of borrowed from my um, mentor and, um, and, and collaborator, Rick Lifton, who had done similar studies to understand blood pressure and to, to work in the kidney. And there, actually, it really was almost enough simply to be able to identify the pathway um, and then to be able to move from that to identify targets. But, you know, <laughs> it's embarrassing to say as a child psychiatrist that, in fact, all that Steve Waxman was telling me is, is that the brain is a lot harder than a kidney and the developing brain is a lot harder than just the brain. So the issue is 
is, is that brain development is highly dynamic, uh, that, that we really don't know a ton honestly, about how the brain is built. We don't have a full census of all the cells that go into the brain. We know something about the kind of uh, topographical um, arrangement in the brain, but it's, it's, um, it, it, it is uh, pretty primitive. Um, and, and so what we've got is sort of a moving target about which we don't know a tremendous amount, this organ. And at the same time, we're identifying genes that like SCN2A, as Steve was pointing out, have multiple different effects. They're highly pleiotropic. So now you've got a problem, which is that you may be able to identify a pathway, you may be able to see a phenotype, but there's no guarantee that the phenotype that you're seeing is really relevant to the pathology of autism spectrum disorders. So in a, <laughs> shortly after this conversation with, um, with Dr. Waxman, um, my lab took a turn. And, and the turn that we took was to try to answer what he saw as a simple question, what I originally thought was gonna be impossible to answer, which is when and where are these genes having an effect? Is there some point of convergence in the risk for autism that would allow us to come back and lay out a series of experiments that wouldn't tell you not would tell you more than what the function of the gene was to begin to tell you when and where it was having its impact on disease pathology? And so, um, so then the question is how we were going to do that. And, and again, the, you know, I, I was extremely fortunate to have a brilliant collaborator down the hall, Nenad Sestin, who remains at Yale. Now, Nenad was interested uh, in building a map of the molecular landscape of developing human brain. And surprisingly, at least surprisingly to me as a human geneticist, um, that really had not happened. Again, in part, not too dissimilar from, autism, from, um, from genetics is that we didn't really have the tools in hand, but by about 2010, he could begin to ask the question, if we look across all the genes uh, that are present in the human organism, can we begin to map out the trajectory of when genes are turned on and turned off in brain development? And so he started to lay out this map of, of he, the human brain transcriptome, the molecular landscape of developing human brain. And he did it by taking 15 periods of development. They're kind of arbitrarily um, uh, divided here, but they start at four weeks post-conception, and they go all the way to over 60 years of age. And he took um, uh, post-mortem tissue um, from uh, brains at each one of these stages, and then he dissected the brains uh, into uh, 16... Uh, identifiable, established anatomical regions, and then he did expression analyses, and it began to just build, as I said, the, this map across development of gene expression. And we had several long conversations about how we might be able to leverage that to answer this question of when and where. And the first idea that we had was to take the genes about which we had highest confidence. So these were the first 10 genes that came out that exceeded our most kind of um, uh, um, a stringent statistical threshold, um, and, and we're already sh um, uh, obviously uh, being identified in multiple different laboratories. So we took those genes and we put them together with these maps of gene expression, and we built co-expression networks. So we used the genes to seed um, uh, uh, um, these, uh, the networks that are, are shown here. And so for each one of the periods and for each one of the brain regions, uh, we built a co-expression network. Um, now, that will tell you something about how the biology of these different autism genes may be connected. But again, we wanted to understand something about autism risk. 
So we set out to try to determine how would we select among these co-expression networks ones that might be relevant to autism. And what we did here is we took the next set of genes, so these are an additional larger set of genes that don't quite meet the threshold for high confidence but have evidence that they're related to autism. And, and we hypothesized that if a network was relevant for autism, one of these co-expression networks, at a particular time in a particular place in human brain development, that we would begin to see these additional autism risk genes show up in those networks. Um, and so we, we you know, sort of developed a statistical test to be able to see whether or not we had enrichment of these autism risk genes within any of the networks to a degree that was greater than expected by chance. And this top panel shows that, in fact, um, it, we took uh, brain regions, and here these are 16 brain regions that are collapsed um, in, in an um, unsupervised hierarchical clustering of expression data into just kind of four um, anatomical areas of the brain. But what you can see, let's see if I can get there, is that, um, that there was really, the, the, the deeper the red, the more significant the finding. We found uh, two periods right next to each other. One that was very highly statistically significant was enriched for additional autism risk genes, built on the first 10 genes that we identified, but then enriched for the, this next set of risk genes. And that was in prefrontal cortex um, and, and primary uh, uh, um, motor cortex. Um, and um, so here is just a, a drawing. Uh, now, you know, we sorted through uh, more than 50 spatially temporally defined um, co-expression networks, and, and this is the most enriched one that corresponds to this finding here. And again, without taking you through the detailed um, methodology, just this is a, a, a representation from a review that we did um, in 2014, is that once we knew that this network was the one that we were interested in, we could begin to ask questions about um, about additional characteristics. So we knew already that this network was enriched uh, and in this period three to five, which is mid-fetal cortex or mid-fetal brain, and then we're looking at prefrontal cortex, and that's represented um, down here. Um, but then we could go further and ask additional questions about that network. So we asked, if you looked at cortex, was that network present in all six layers of cortex? And in fact, it was not. It was present really only in this enriched network was present in deep layer cortex, layers five and six. And, and um, we also asked the question whether or not it was in all cell types in the cortex, and we came up with the answer that it wasn't. It was only in glutamatergic neurons in layer five and six. So when you think about this, it now is really more than anything a proof of principle kind of experiment, but it's taken us from what you might think of as a static data set, which is the, these individual mutations that are contributing to autism risk. It's overlaid functional data about the developing human brain, and that's allowed us now to identify or at least hypothesize that a particular point of convergent biological vulnerability for autism for the genes that we're looking at are mid-fetal human brain, deep layer cortex, and glutamatergic projection neurons. And, and this diagram over here is just meant to sort of point out the slight kind of twist on how we were thinking about understanding pathology. So as opposed to saying, you know, what exactly is going wrong, uh, we're asking when and where is it going wrong. And this is pointing out that the genes that we're looking at um, are in different cell compartments. They're involved in a variety of different functions from comatin modification to synaptic functioning, et cetera. What's bringing them together is not a pathway, not a protein-protein interaction. What's bringing them together is the spatial temporal distribution of risk. 
So um, I just want to summarize here. Um, we're certainly not at the end of the story, but I hope um, that I've been able to show you that exome sequencing has transformed gene discovery, um, uh, um, uh, particularly leveraging these uh, um, interesting characteristics of de novo mutation. Uh, these are large effect mutations. They are present in the coding portion of the genome and consequently give us a fairly direct pathway now to understand them at the bench. Um, the, a challenge that we face, uh, continue to face, is how we can then begin to um, constrain the next set of experiments in a way that's going to tell us not only something about the biology, but that's going to really be, begin to hone in on pathophysiology. Again, when you see a phenotype, when you manipulate something in a model system for an autism gene, if it's pleiotropic, there is a difference potentially between the biology that you might describe and the pathophysiology that we want to understand. Already I've shown you that um, there is convergence, at least for a, a subset of autism genes. This is unlikely to be the answer for all autism genes. In fact, I would bet against it. But um, there is a convergence um, among uh, our data set, but then again from other laboratories in, um, in mid-fetal development. Um, and the last point that I'll make is not a political one, but important nonetheless, which is, um, in fact, it's the genetic heterogeneity of autism, I think, now that really gives us the tremendous opportunity to be successful in identifying uh, novel treatments. If you could imagine that after all this work, we ended up with one gene, say, like the Huntington's gene, uh, and that would be the thing that we would absolutely have to understand and would have to turn out to give us an avenue to treat. Um, in fact, in autism, we have quite a different story where we have many different potential targets that are coming up simultaneously. They are fortunately consolidating around a smaller um, a number, a manageable number of biological processes, and what look like a very manageable number of of developmental time points and, um, and anatomical distributions that um, we really might be able to leverage this heterogeneity in a way that, um, that will uh, lead to the ultimate success um, in this research strategy. Um, this work was done by, um, uh, by uh, wonderful folks in the lab. I particularly want to highlight the work of Stefan Sanders uh, and Jeremy Wilsey. Stefan's name and Jeremy's you saw uh, throughout the, the, um, the presentation. They're both assistant professors now at UCSF uh, and really did the lion's share uh, of the work from developing the analytic tools um, to uh, writing the papers. Um, and, and this involved a collaboration with multiple collaborators, both at Yale, at UCSF, and, and around the country, um, uh, including other labs um, uh, that uh, were um, uh, seminal in identifying the role of de novo mutations uh, to autism spectrum disorders. But most importantly, none of this work would be possible. Um, uh, either without the support of our funders, but more importantly, the participation of the families that contributed to the Simon Simplex Collection and the other uh, autism uh, cohorts that, um, that uh, uh, I've uh, talked about um, uh, uh, in this uh, presentation. So thank you for your attention. <laughs>